Well, take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians 5. We're in a series that we're calling Called Out. And this series is all about the new life in Christ that the Corinthian church had, the church of God at Corinth, and how they were different, how things have changed now that God is in their life, now that Jesus Christ is living and alive inside of them. And we have been literally going through this book one chapter at a time, all right? And when you go through a chapter, you go through a book one chapter at a time, a lot of times you're going to come across things that you may have been tempted to skip over if you weren't just going through a book series, okay? And today is one of those chapters. When I first looked at this, I was like, wow, I could talk about a lot more positive things than church discipline. <laughs> uh, but believe me, this is, this is what we have to do. We, we don't want to, like, take any shortcuts. Uh, and believe me when I say there is so much power in this passage that this is not a negative scary, sad thing. Because when you have Jesus involved, there's always hope, right? There's always hope. And what we're going to see today is that restorative church discipline elevates God's glory. It actually elevates God's glory. So I know a lot of us in here who've grown up in the church, you may hear the word church discipline, that phrase, and you're thinking, wow, sounds kind of prideful, sounds kind of judgmental. Kind of, you have negative harmful feelings associated with that. And I, and I get that. But when you look at the purpose and the heart behind church discipline, and this is what we're going to see today, you can see that true church discipline, for the right reasons, done the right way, is actually protecting the body and it's loving the soul. Okay? It's protecting the church body and it's loving the eternal soul of the person that is there in that church. So it elevates God's glory because it keeps the church pure and on mission. And it's also part of the restoration process for an individual who's in rebellion against God. So we're going to see three points about protecting the body and loving the soul today. We're going to look at three specific truths in this passage. And here's the first one. It's never minimized truth. All right? So let's read the text. How about we start with that? 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You're probably already there. Verse 1. I'm going to read the text, then we'll actually go through each one of these phases, and we're going to first of all see that we should never minimize sin. Verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. You see why I was tempted just to skip over this passage today? Um, starting out pretty awkward, and... Thankfully, it doesn't say a man has his mother, all right? There's a, there's, a, there's a difference here. Man has his father's wife. So I'm going to say this could really only mean one thing. This is his stepmom. And it's still pretty disgusting. It's still pretty weird. Um, but we'll, let's just keep moving on, okay? We'll, we'll get back to that. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you were assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. 
Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from within. All right, it's heavy, right? There is a lot there, and that was very heavy. And, and you can see why people who don't understand the gospel, people who aren't in the church, can look at a passage like this and be like, separate, judge people. Come on, where's the love, Paul? Deliver someone over for, to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? This sounds really harsh, really rigid on the surface. But when you look at the purpose and the heart behind this, it is all going to add up to Jesus Christ as a living hope, Jesus Christ restored. That's what we're really going to see here today. So never minimize sin, all right? You have this horrible sin going on in the church, and do you remember what the Church of Corinth's response was to what was happening here? What was their response in verse 2? Let's look at verse 2. Were they... Like, were they upset about it? Like, trying to figure out what to do? What are they? Somebody, somebody say it out loud. They were proud. They were arrogant. They had arrogance. They thought, hey, look at us. We're being inclusive. Does that, sound, does that ring any bells? Does that sound, sound familiar today at all in any, any way, shape, or form? They were prideful, and they thought it was fine. It's not going to affect me. It's not going to hurt me. It's okay. That was their stance. And so to break this down, first of all, we have to talk about sex for a minute because we've, I've mentioned this like every week. Corinth was an incredibly sexually immoral place. The whole culture and the whole society was run by sex and fed off of sex. I mean, the, the Corinthians who were saved by the grace of God and came out of that darkness, they still had a lot of baggage, okay? They really did. But the Greek word for sexual immorality that you see in verse 1 is the word porneia. It's where we get our English word pornography. And it doesn't just mean lust, okay? This means all sexual sin. Now, we can't underestimate sin or minimize sin in any way. And just because you may be here and you're like, well, David, I have no desire to lure my stepdad into any situation. Thank goodness, of course not. I get that. Um, but we're talking about all sexual sin in this passage. And any type of sin, whether that be looking at pornography and going after that, whether that be being unfaithful to your wife, whether that be being selfish about your sexual desires and using those only for yourself, we have to understand that sex is a gift of God. It's designed by God. It's, he is the great giver and designer of sex. And it's for a man and a woman in a marriage covenant relationship. 
And anything outside of that, sex can become a problem. So, so there's a couple issues with sex. First of all, Christians can take sex, and then we can see what the world does with it and how the world abuses it, and we can get scared of it, and we can, get, we can think it's a dirty thing. That's not true at all. That's, that's not in the Bible. We can't let the world's perversion of sex make us think that we should, we should shun it and it's, it's, you can't ever talk about it. That's not true at all. It has a specific, beautiful place. It's for a man and a woman to be intertwined in their souls together. It creates a greater degree of intimacy. You can't minimize sex and say it's just some recreational high or it's just something that I do for my own good pleasure. No, the world corrupts it and they minimize it. They don't value it enough and they cheapen sex. Do you see that? Are you all with me on that? So we can't allow the world's perversion of sex to corrupt our view of sex. We have to elevate it, keep it in its proper place. It's a beautiful gift from God, praise him. But we also have to understand that it's easily, it's easily corrupted and it's easily abused. And the world does that. And we can't let the world do that, and then we can't let them affect our view of sex at the same time. So look at sin seriously. You can't afford not to. I had a neighbor uh, back when I lived in Greenville. This was, you know, a few years back. You know, I was just out of seminary. This guy was 29 years old at the time. He wasn't a believer. And he told me, I'll never forget this, I hate this about myself, that I'm addicted to pornography. It affects my view of women. I feel guilt. I feel shame. Julie has counseled teenage girls about this. I've counseled countless teenage guys and guys older than myself about pornography. If that sexual sin is something that you think just affects you and it doesn't affect somebody else, that's a lie. The pornography industry fuels human trafficking. Pornography is addictive. It will distort your view of the opposite sex. It's so damaging and so harmful in so many facets of life. We cannot allow sexual sin to impact us. We cannot minimize sexual sin. So the arrogant route is to say, it won't touch me, pretend like it's not a big deal, to joke about it. That's what the Corinthians are doing, i.e. that's also what the American entertainment industry often does with sex. We can't afford to do that. We need to mourn sin. We need to look at sin the way God looks at sin. He sent Jesus to die for that sin. Now, getting back to restorative church discipline that elevates God's glory, um, we can look through this passage, this passage I just read, and we can actually pick up, when you look closely at it, you can pick up a lot of guidelines for when and how to have church discipline and why it's even, why it's even necessary, okay? So the first thing that I want you to see here, point number one on the guidelines for sexual uh, sin and hence church discipline, number one is, it's for unrepentant sin. It's for unrepentant sin. What is happening here in this guy in the church at Corinth is not just a one-night stand that he repented over, and now it's in the past. That's not the occasion, right? This is a lifestyle choice where he has his father's wife, and he's not budging on that. Okay, do you see the first thing? It's an unrepentant sin. Number two, it's a clear sin. We're not talking about a debatable sin here at all. There's lots of sins that Christians debate on, right? I mean, we could make a huge list if we wanted to. We're not going to go down that, that path. But the sin of listening to country music, all right? We're not going to have church discipline over that. Now, I'm totally kidding. Uh, I love the Avid Brothers. I love, I love Dawes. But I would debate with you. I don't think they're even country musicians, okay? So you see how we're not going to get into a whole debate game? We're not going to even play that. 
uh, we're talking about clearly defined sins. And, and Paul gives us a list there. Look at verse 11. We just read this. But I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, lifestyle of greed, or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat such a one. Titus 3 also talks about a person who sows discord and disunity among the, the church, the brothers and sisters in the church. That's another thing that you actually need to have restorative discipline for. But we're talking about undebatable sins. Not the shotgun approach of anybody, the person offended me, let me go to them. No, un, undebatable sins. Number three is it's a process. And Jesus talks about this too. If you want to turn really quickly to Matthew 18, Matthew 18, Jesus Christ gives us some guidelines on this, and it matches perfectly with what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 5. If you don't want to turn to Matthew 18, that's totally fine. You can follow with me. But Matthew 18, verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So there's step one in the process. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So there's step two in the process. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, step three. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, step four, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. He's saying the same thing that Paul said to remove him from the church and deliver him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Is what we're dealing with is a person who is claiming to be a Christian inside the church. They say, no, no, no. I don't want to do what God says. I don't want to listen to Jesus. I want to do my sin. The loving thing to do in that case is to say, no, your life right now is actually the antithesis of the gospel. And I can't let you fool yourself into thinking that you're okay. So the loving thing to do for your soul is to be honest with you and tell you you're not fine. This is not right. I'm going to have to treat you like who you're really living like. Somebody who's outside the body of faith. That's the process of church discipline. Notice it also said don't just go to the pastor immediately. If somebody offends you, go to the pastor and tell him. No, no, no. It says go to them alone. <laughs> right? Go to them first. Share with them. And if that's still not working, bring, bring a friend in. Bring a couple more people along. Let's try to resolve this. You see how, Lord willing, in most cases, you never even have to take it before the church. It never even has to go that far. Restorative discipline, things are righted, and wrongs are righted way before it ever gets to the point where you have to escalate it. Excommun excommunication isn't about making ourselves look good. It's for the purpose of restoration. It's for the purpose of restoration. Um, I've been in churches before. I'm not even making this up. Where sermon ends. Pastor comes up. We've got a teenage girl up there. She's crying. And he tells the whole church, this girl has sinned. This girl is now pregnant. We have to help her. And I'm sitting there thinking, what the heck is going on? She's already repented. So what is the point of bringing her up before the church at this point? If she's already got this covered, and she's already repented, and it's already taken care of, there's no point in now bringing this before the church. That has already been resolved in like step one or step two. When you go before the church, most likely you're never going to bring somebody up because they're already in rebellion at that point. 
when somebody refuses the way of Jesus and insists on their own way, the loving thing for us to do is say, all right, you're not acting like a Christian, and by your fruits you shall know them, and I mean, I'm just going to have to lovingly tell you this is not okay. And, and you're wrong. Like, please come back. And you treat that person, you, you don't pretend like they're a Christian when they're not acting like a Christian at all. Uh, the heartbeat of this, you can see this in Galatians 6, 1. Um, to remove this person, lest you too be tempted, lest you too fall. Okay, so this whole spirit of restoration, the whole goal, every single time, when Jesus talks about it, when Paul's talking about it, he's talking about it in Galatians 6, every single time, the process is for the purpose of restoration. Treat them like they need salvation. The church can't judge the heart, but we can't be misguided and say that everybody who's ever sinned, just get them up there and discipline them. It's not a checklist, do this, this, or that. No, it's like, let's come alongside this person and help this person. And the thing about this is one of the benefits of doing church discipline, restorative church discipline, in this manner, behind the scenes, working with people, helping restore people. And let's say it goes to the to nth degree and the person actually has to be um, excommunicated. If that rare occasion happens, it is a warning for every single one of us. It's a warning for all of us. And, and that's number five. It's a warning for the believer. Because the minute you think that any sin is beyond you, the minute I think that any sin is beyond myself, I'm vulnerable. And you're vulnerable. We all have a sin nature. Even if we're a child of God called out of darkness into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ, we still wrestle with the spirit in our flesh. Okay? We're, we are depraved. Until we are glorified and until we're with Jesus in eternity one day, we are going to struggle. We're going to have issues that we have to work through and deal with. Right? So it's a warning for the believer that this kind of sin, anybody could fall. And it's not going to happen overnight for sure, but when you get away from God and you stop walking with God and you, you get tempted, that person at work, they understand you and they laugh around and you have a fun time with them and you're always fighting with your spouse at home. See where the temptation for infidelity comes in? Or, or let's just say you like, you like having success, you like running your business and you make a lot of money and the temptation for greed comes in and then you start making all your decisions based off of, off of swindling people and making, making a buck and, and running after the almighty dollar. There's so many ways that we can get off track in our life if we're not in the body, if we're not talking with each other, in life groups, explaining, hey, hold me accountable for this. Like, I need prayer for this. That's something that we as a church do in our life groups and we do it outside of, our, outside of our Sunday gathering. It's such an important component of the church is to be there for each other. Don't pretend like everything is okay. We all know everything is not okay, right? We can't play that game. Life is serious. Sin is serious. Never minimize sin. Take that as a, take that as a warning. And let me just encourage you, if you are struggling with one of these things, let's say you are addicted to pornography. Let's say you are wrestling with some very serious sin issues that you don't want anybody to know about. It's okay to 
talk about it with someone else. It's okay to go to someone and ask them to hold you accountable and to pray for you. You can get it right today because Jesus is the one who will restore you. Jesus is the answer. He loves you. He came into this world to die for your sin so you didn't, you didn't have to live in slavery to that sin. And he wants to give you that freedom and that joy and that peace. God will forgive you. He loves you. So as a church, let's stop pretending it's fine. Let's start confessing. And let's, let's run to Christ. Jesus Christ, our living hope. You can see this in the parable of the lost son. Um, Luke 15. What do you have there? I mean, in that story. There's a lot going on in that story. But that story, one of the components of it is it pictures our loving Heavenly Father, God the Father. So that son, he takes his inheritance early, in effect, spitting in his father's face, telling him, I don't even want you in my life anymore. He takes that money. He goes out in riotous living. He parties it up for a long time on that party scene. He blows through the cash. He's left with nothing. His friends, his friends, in quote, that he thought he had, abandoned him once the money was gone. Then he's like living in this pigsty, working for this farmer, feeding the pigs. And he comes to this realization that even my father's servants have it better than me. So I will go back to my father and ask him to be his servant. And then you see this beautiful picture of God. He's looking, he's waiting for his lost, wayward, prodigal son to return. And he sees him from a far way off. And what does God the Father do? He runs to him. He gives him his royal signet ring. He, take, he kills the fatted calf and he has a feast. Because that's our God. He wants to restore. He's in the business of restoring. And he does it through Jesus Christ. So that's true for all of us today. Don't feel like your sin that you've kept hidden is going to hold you in slavery forever. It doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. This is where we see our second point. Point number two, the second truth about loving the body, protecting the body and loving the soul. Number two, it is to protect the distinctiveness of the church. Protect the distinctiveness of the church. Look at verse six again. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. All right, now, a lot of talk about unleavened bread here. And let me be honest, I don't know a lot about unleavened bread. Okay, I had to do some research this week. And some of you may be like total foodies. You're always watching the Food Network and you know all about this. If that's you, great. I'm going to try not to embarrass myself. You can just go along with me for a minute here. But... Some of your translations may even say yeast. Some of, your, some of your translations may say unfermented bread. All right, I don't know if anybody says that. Okay, there's a lot going on here because yeast, what we use as yeast, a lot of times modern translations will take unleavened and they'll translate the leaven into yeast. Yeast is not the same as leaven. It's a completely different thing, and I feel like I need to explain this to you. Does anybody bake bread, though? Anybody bake bread? Okay. One person? Yeah, oh yeah, I thought you did, Hannah. I thought you did. A couple people baked bread. We're going to talk about hot, fresh baked bread for a minute. I'm not going to try to tempt you. I mean, doesn't that sound good? Like some hot bread, dip it in some like olive oil dressing. I don't know, it sounds amazing right now. But I'm not going to try to tempt you for lunch. We're going to talk about this because it's important to understand what he's saying. Leaven is not yeast. All right? 
Yeast is something we use. But in this time period, they would make a batch of dough, all right? And then they would cut off a slice of that dough, and they would put inside, and they would let that ferment. They would let that bread ferment. Then they would, you know, that first batch, that was going to be your unleavened bread that you ate. But the next day, when you come back with that old piece of dough that had been fermenting overnight, you, when you need to make another batch of dough, you would take that piece and you'd work it in with this new batch of dough. So now you have this old dough that's fermented and it's mixed in, kind of like sourdough bread, but we're not going to Publix and we're not getting sourdough bread starter. No, we're going the organic, natural route here. Um, real, true, unleavened, true leavened bread. So you take that new piece, that old piece, into your new, new lump, and you have a piece of fermented, you have a piece of leavened bread. They would do this every single day, every single time they made a new batch of bread for 51 weeks a year. The one week that they didn't do this was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And a lot of times when people see Paul talking about the Passover, they just assume verse 8 is talking about the Passover. Well, the Passover was one week. Passover was, uh, excuse me, the Passover was 24 hours. Passover was one day. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was one week. So they would have one week where they had no leaven. No leaven at all. They weren't taking the old fermented dough and putting it in with the new dough. No, they were cleansing everything. And the reason for that is if you keep using the same fermented dough over and over and over and over and over again, I know some of you are like, I'm losing some of you, I feel like, on this. Like, some of you are not into baking bread. But if you do this over and over and over again, the chemicals and the molecules will get out of control, and sickness will, will, will strike, okay? So they had a whole week of purifying the entire house with no leaven. And that's what Paul is explaining to the Corinthians. When he says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, and he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, don't you know that? Of course they know that. Of course they know that. They're, they're in this process. This is like their life to eat this bread. They know that leaven, you need to carry it over every single time, but they also know that it'll spiral out of control. And leaven pictures evil. It pictures sin. If we don't cleanse the evil from amongst our body, our church body, or our dough of bread, it's going to corrupt the whole thing. Are you all with me on that? You see where he's going with that? So that's the point. The point is we need to protect the distinctiveness of the church. And it's prideful to think that their sin isn't going to affect you. This is where you have point number six, the sixth guideline. If you were like one of those list people and you're like, oh, no, he didn't give me the sixth guideline. Here it is right here. It's, it's dealt with inside the church. That's the whole point. This isn't for people outside the church. This isn't for anyone else. This is for people who are claiming to be a Christian, a Christ follower, who are inside the body of Christ. So you may wonder, well, where's the stepmom in this whole thing? Why isn't Paul talking about her? It's because she probably wasn't a member of the church. That's the only solution I have. She's probably not a member of the church, so Paul's not even going to worry about her. He's going to deal with the guy who's in the church. Protect the body and love the soul. Um, this is the same concept of like one bad apple will spoil the barrel. It's not like all the good apples are going to make that one bad apple whole. No, the bad apple will corrupt and destroy all of the good apples. So cleanse out the old leaven. Christ has made you new. You're a new creation. You're a new person. You're a new lump of dough, okay? Don't let this unfermented dough 
come in there and spoil the whole thing. And then he talks about Jesus, the Passover, the Passover lamb. And the Passover, all the way back in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, you see Jesus is the sacrifice for our sin. Because in the Passover, which was this one 24-hour period, the Jews, God's people, his chosen called-out people who were leaving the land of Egypt, they were to take a lamb, slaughter it, take the blood of that lamb, and take that blood over the doorpost of their door. And when the death angel came by, if he saw the blood of the lamb on the wood, does this sound like the cross to you? Because it should. If he sees that, he's going to pass over that, that house, and the firstborn will be spared. Jesus Christ is the perfect Passover lamb. He is the ultimate sacrifice. He's the one who came into this world to die for our sin once and for all. And his blood that was shed on that piece of wood, the cross, is what we can look to by faith. And we could say, Jesus, I love you. I forsake my sin, my way, and I turn to you. I turn to what you've done, how you've forgiven me of my sin. And by faith alone, trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. That changes everything. That changes your heart, and that changes your actions. And that's why Paul is saying, you have to purge this person. You can't let this person kid themselves. This sin is serious. You can't minimize it. You have to protect the distinctiveness of the church. So to say I'm going to hold on to this sexual choice because I like it, it's not okay. I'm going to identify with my sexual preference, not okay. I'm going to engage in idolatry and worship success in sports over God, not okay. There's a thousand ways that you could do this. You could elevate God. You could elevate something else over God, and that's old leaven. Christ died to remove the old way, so don't let the old back in. See, Christians should be distinct. We should be different than the world around us. We're supposed to be because we have a new heart. We have new passions. We have a new reason to live life, right? Just ask yourself, am I trying to be as close to the world as I can possibly be? Or am I trying to live my life as a light to shine it for Jesus Christ? See, your distinctiveness should attract them to God. They should look at, the world around you should look at you and say, wow, they don't get upset about the same things I get upset about. They don't get fired up about all that stuff. They let it roll off their back. That's incredible. Like, what's up with that? They look at your marriage. They look at your relationships. Wow, they're not in this for them. They're not addicted to all these things. They don't have any, they, they actually have hope. They're not hopeless like me. The world should look at us and they should see the distinctiveness that we have in Christ because he has made us new. This is what Paul is talking about, protecting the body and loving the soul. We should be different. Why would they ever want what we have and go to church on Sunday and take up their Sunday morning <laughs> if we don't have anything that they're missing. But we do have something that they're missing. We have Christ living inside us. We have a hope and a reason to live that's greater and bigger than us. They need to see that distinction in our life. Here's the third point. Live in the world and guard your heart from the world. Live in the world and guard your heart from the world. This rolls off perfectly with being distinct in Christ. And this is super important. See, the Corinthian church, they screwed this up. And many well-intentioned Christians screw this thing up. All right? What do they screw up? They separate from the wrong person. 
the Corinthians separated from the wrong sexually immoral persons. What did the Corinthians think? Oh, oh, and what do many Christians think? Oh, I need to separate from this worldly person because they're of the world and they're sexually immoral and they're a greedy swindler. Well, guess what? Everyone around you in the world is like that, okay? That doesn't work. You can't just put your head in the sand and walk around with bubble wrap and still be a light for Jesus. It's impossible to do, okay? The person that you're supposed to separate from, the person that you're supposed to be distinct from is the person that's in your church who says, hey, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus. And then their whole lifestyle is contrary to everything that Jesus stood for. That's the person we separate from. We live in the world we're just not of the world. Paul in his previous letter apparently told them about separating from sexually immoral people, and they didn't catch the connection that he was not talking about the people that they go to work with, the people that they're in school with, the people that are on their kids' sports teams, not all these people in the world around them. No, it's the sexually immoral people that are pretending to be a Christian. That's what, we, that's what trips us up. That's what gets us into trouble. So I'm not telling you to associate with someone who's in the world. I'm telling you not to associate with someone who bears the name of brother. Hopefully that's crystal clear. We just saw why that is. It's for the church's protection. It's because you love that person's soul and you want that person to change. You want that person to be restored. And does this mean, David, that I could never go uh, hang out with my uncle who married an unsaved woman? Well, good question. I mean, I've had to wrestle with that one. Well, Let's think through this, all right? Is your uncle part of your church? Is he a member of the same church that you're in? That would be one criteria. If he's not a member of one church, the same church, then, I mean, you're already out of that situation. Is sitting at the Thanksgiving dinner table the same as, like, not eating with them? Well, this is where Paul's not perfectly clear. What Paul for sure is talking about is don't let that person practice communion, what we just did last week. He's definitely talking about that. But I think he's talking about more. I think he's taking this to the next step. I think is what Paul is saying is when he says, don't even eat with that person, don't pretend like everything's fine and invite them over for a barbecue to chill out. When that person who is a part of your church, who is living a completely broken lifestyle that's affecting people in the church and hurting the church's name, and he's really going against God, when he's doing that, the loving thing isn't to just be like, hey, come over, let's grill some burgers and let's have a drink and let's pretend like it's all okay, even though you don't go to church here anymore. No, it's to make it, make it serious enough to say, there's something wrong. I still love you, man, but you're not in the right place. That's why Paul says don't even eat with such a person. The church must mix into the world while keeping the world from mixing into us. Paul is saying to stay in the world but to guard your heart from the world. All who are in Christ Jesus are called out of darkness. And while that has happened, we are still called to love the people of the world, not the world system, but the people of the world, and to reach out to them and be very, very careful that we don't let their passions and their desires turn into our desires. Because ours should be vertical. They should be pointing upwards. We should be living for Jesus. Jesus talks about the same thing in John 17. John 17 is another passage that talks about what we're seeing here in 1 Corinthians 5, and specifically the angle of being in the world 
and not of the world. All right? I got it right up here for you, so you don't even have to turn there, all right? I do not ask that you take them out of the world. It's talking about Christians. He's talking about believers. But that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. You see your mission here. Your mission is to, to mingle, to get to know, to associate with, to love the lost people around you. It's so right there. But at the same time, being on guard and being watchful and diligent that we don't turn into them. That we don't take their passions and their desires. The church remains a viable alternative to the world by being in it and not of it. Distinction with association. Not the same as weird isolation. It's a much different thing. So that's restorative church discipline. I hope you can see that today. The goal of restorative church discipline is to protect the body, to keep it on mission for Jesus. It is to love the soul because the loving thing to do for a person is to say, hey, you think you're okay, but you're really not okay. And when restorative church discipline happens, it can be hard. It can be grueling, especially if it doesn't happen the right way in the first couple of steps. It can just be not fun. But it's also never hopeless. It's never hopeless because Jesus is in the equation. And Jesus Christ is our living hope. And he's the one who set this up. I didn't pick this passage today because I wanted to talk about something negative. I picked this because it's my responsibility to teach you the truth of God's word and to see Jesus' heart. His heart is for restoring a lost and broken person. The band is going to start playing in a second. We're going to corporately sing Living Hope again. But I want to give you a second way to respond today. We can respond and praise God and worship, and we can also respond perhaps by getting some of this stuff settled. Maybe we can do some restorative church discipline right here, right now, today. I have a couple guys in the back. Blake and Jeremy are back there. If you're, if you're struggling with something, you're hiding something, it's never going to work out to cover it. First of all, it's eventually going to come out. Second of all, it'll just eat away at you. It'll take away your joy, take away your purpose. Don't, don't do that. Come to God. Confess repent today get some help from somebody else in this church we'd love to help you so you can go back there when we stand in a second you can talk to them you can pray about that repentance is the key to saving your soul perfection is not you either confess it or you mask it stop masking the sin let's take it to the cross our living our living hope in jesus christ we can't stop sinning by just knowing that sin is bad the way you stop sinning is by loving Jesus more. That's the way it changes. Don't go back to the old leaven. Jesus died for the old leaven. So let's all stand. Let's praise God. Jesus, our living hope. And if you're here today and you need to talk to somebody about this, there's something that you've kept hidden. There's something that you just need to get right with God. Just pray. Let's do that right now. Let's pray.